You've seen us work before. We can't make those kind of promises. You want to know something? Honestly, you guys can do what the hell you want to do. You're in the law. You're the law. Okay? Um, I, know, I know the only thing above you is statutes and, and, and written laws. But if you want to do something, you're going to do it. Okay? And, and, and I'm not goofy. I'm not stupid. Justice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, episode 18, Gal Pals, Julie Knight and Bridget Logston. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Listen, I, I just want to give a quick shout out to Michelle Ravel in Las Vegas and Ellen No from Denmark. They both signed up this week for our patron program and, and we really appreciate their support. It helps out so much. I've been getting pictures, you know, and I just want to give everybody else a, a, a quick shout out that that joined in on our, our message in a bottle thing. I've been getting uh, pictures of everybody's bottles, and it's just, it's amazing to me. I mean, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with uh, gratitude for everybody that did that. I mean, it's all the creativity and the thought and, and um, time that everybody put into those things. It's just like, it's, it's just amazing, you know, and... Uh, and I just want to, you know, I know, I know I already told everybody thank you, but I just I, I just want everybody to, you know, to, to know that uh, it really means the world to me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't say a lot about, you know, Tammy and Bruce and Leslie and, and all the, the time and the effort and the work that you guys put into this thing, you know. And, and I just, uh, just want to thank you guys, you know. Um, you guys, what I do is simple. My, my contribution to this is uh, I do the easy part, you know. You guys, the three of you, do the do, do all the heavy lifting, and uh, it 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 is uh, it means everything to me. And I just I just want the three of you to know that uh, you know what you're doing is uh, not only getting the uh, the story out about you know how the state did this to me, but it it. Uh, it gives me reason to keep going. So I, I want to thank you guys, too. I guess this week we're talking about Julie and Julie Knight, Shane, Talon, and Bridget Longston, and... Uh, you know that whole family. I, I you know, I, 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 Julie didn't testify at, at my trial. Um, I grew up, grew up next door to her and her mom, and I think, I think it was her, her stepdad, her brother, uh, for maybe four or five years. When we were, I, I would say she was probably maybe 10, 11 years old. 
much younger than I was. Bridget Longston testified, and she was another witness who, you know, when she came in to testify, you know, I, I had I had never uh, just another one of the state's witnesses that I'd never laid eyes on before. I know that probably sounds crazy to a lot of people who have heard me say this over and over about these people that I've never laid eyes on before. You know, what's really crazy about that to me, and I was thinking about this today when I was, you know, thinking about what I was going to tell you all today, you know, I, you know, something that strikes me as really um, unbelievable is that the state was able to put all these people on the stand who never knew me, had never met me, who I'd never laid eyes on before, and and they didn't know it. I, I, I just I just don't buy that. There's no way that they could have put that many people on the stand to testify against me who I had never met before without them having some level of knowledge of that. And if they didn't, then they they should have. And they didn't. You know, they didn't do the. Uh, background work on these people that they should have, you know, when when Bruce Rowland and Steve Shield failed their polygraph tests, you, you would think then that they would actually start looking a little bit closer at these witnesses, but they didn't. Anyways, you know, Bridget was really just put on the stand to discredit my wife's testimony, you know, that, that that's all it was, that I was at home. She basically testified that she had overheard a conversation with my wife and two other girls at a, at a bar in Bloomington. She was basically testifying that she'd overheard Tammy telling somebody that she, she knew I committed the crime, something along the lines. We find out later on that, you know, she had some pending charges at the time, which is, you know, par for the course. But... We went back to the two, we, we've, we've tried to go, we've tried to talk to Julie. Julie's just blowing us off. We, we did talk to the other girl that Bridget said was there when she overheard Tammy, you know, saying this stuff. And, and, and the other girl said, no, it never happened, you know. And it's sort of like the Mary Burns thing. I mean, I don't know how else you defend yourself against people like this about, against, you know, these sorts of witnesses. I mean, when they make a statement and they say, you know, somebody said this and, and uh, you know, these other people were present when it was said. I don't know how else you defend yourself against stuff like that other than to go to the people that that person included in these conversations or whatever and ask them did that happen. Before trial, my attorneys never uh, went and talked to the, the, the two uh, people that Richard said was there. One of the girls that said absolutely it didn't happen. But I can remember very, uh, very vividly the day I, I, I got the, um, the statement from this girl who I'd never met before, who suspiciously was able to point out in the courtroom like she, she knew me. And I remember when my wife came up to visit me in the county jail, uh, I held the statement up to the window and I, I was like, you know, I'm just looking there and I'm like, you know, what is this? You know, who is this? You know? And, and I remember she she had this look of just, I don't know, bewilderment on her face, you know, but she started to cry. She was like, that's a lie, you know? She's like, she's just looking at me and she was crying. She's like, that's a lie, that never happened. You know, it kind of sucks. I mean, it, you know, I'm used to, you know, I guess when it comes to this case, having people lie about me and, you know, 
put words in my mouth. Jamie said this, Jamie said that, Jamie did this, Jamie did that. But uh, I, I got to look at, you know, how it made her feel uh, when someone was uh, was doing it to her, you know, and uh, and something so so negative and, and so, uh, so terrible. You know, wait, wait till you hear the story that, uh, that, that Tammy and, and, and Bruce and Leslie are able to, uh, you know, show you about, about Julie. I mean, Julie, basically, she testified against my co-defendant Susan, who was found not guilty. Thank God, uh, clearly the jury, uh, realized how full of it she really was. I mean, her story is just ridiculous, completely and totally ridiculous. That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it on these these people. I think uh, I think it, you'll be uh, very uh, interested in, to, to hear what uh, Shane, uh, Julie's brother, has to say. Uh, he he finally has uh, divulged some some really uh, eye opening and, uh, and and telling. Uh, information but not surprising at all so i appreciate y'all tuning in and listening and uh you know i hope everyone's out there staying uh safe and covid free julie knight didn't testify in jamie's trial but she testified in the grand jury as well as at susan's trial in fact julie's mother and brother also testified in the grand jury as you will see it was a family affair on March 30, 1999, Detective Katz Ann Barkas interviewed Julie's mother, Paula Wingett. She told police that Susan told her back in the summer of 1991 or 1992 that she knew all about the little case, but would not tell her any details. Wingett went on to say that her ex-husband told her that Susan had told him that Jamie, a hitchhiker, and Susan were all involved in the crime, and that Jamie was the shooter. Wingett said she confronted Susan with what Howard had told her, and that Susan replied that she knew it was Jamie, but would not expand on it. Wingett said she has known Jamie since her children were young, and that she used to babysit Jamie. She also said that she has heard other people say Jamie did it, including her son Shane. Wingett said that was the only conversation she had with Susan about the crime, that it occurred in her home, and that her daughter, Julie Knight, was present during the conversation. Within the next week, Detectives Katz and Barkas interviewed Julie Knight and her stepfather, Paul Howard, as well. Knight told police many details, including that Susan told her that she drove a brown or tan cutlass getaway car, that Jamie killed Bill Little, that Susan had parked down the street, and that she wasn't sure if Jamie got mad because there wasn't enough money or because of being seen. Knight also told police that her brother, Shane Talon, and her then-husband, Tony Knight, were also there for the conversation with Susan, and that it occurred at Susan's residence at the beginning of 1992. Knight initially says she and Susan were not very close, and were not very good friends. Late in the tape, Knight says that they were all very, very good friends, and that Susan had told her, between 30 and 50 times, that she drove the getaway car that Susan never told her that Jamie brought something back to the car with him, referencing the cash drawer that was missing, and they didn't discuss what happened to the weapon. Finally, Knight tells police there was a rumor going around Bloomington, around 1992, that she had gone to the police. She clearly states this rumor occurred after the 30 to 50 conversations she allegedly had with Susan about the crime. Knight goes on to say that Jamie came into her father's bait shop after January 1992, didn't say anything to her, but gave her a cold, dead stare. 
then turned around and left. She said she was scared and got on the phone with her father. However, this could not have happened because Jamie was in Florida from September or October 1991 until December of 1993. The same week Paul Howard, Julie Knight's father, told detectives Katz and Barkas that one time Susan Powell said to him, I can't believe that Jamie Snow done that, and that's all he knows about it. Howard states he thinks this conversation came up because he had a suspect picture on the wall at his bait shop, but that he didn't think the composite looked like Jamie Snow, that it looked like a guy named Ted Hughes, who had killed his girlfriend. He stated the conversation came up a year or two after it happened, and it was either in his home or at his bait shop on West Market. He thinks maybe Julie Knight was there when the conversation took place. Howard goes on to tell an elaborate story. He said Susan told him about the Freedom gas station robbery, stating that Susan was the driver, and he used a leather coat to pull up over his head to go in and rob it. We know for a fact that none of that happened. Shane Talon told police that he knows a little bit about the Clark Station case, and Susan Powell told him she was in the car when Jamie shot Bill Little. He said the conversation occurred around August of 1991 through February of 1992 while they were dating. He said it was one conversation and Paul Howard was present, and he thinks Howard heard the conversation. Talon states that he hasn't talked to Susan since February of 1992. However, Julie Knight told police in her interview that Talon and Susan had gotten back together later, when he was in Galesburg. Talon said they were getting high on crack cocaine before the crime. He said Susan and Jamie were usually hanging out with Carl Claycomb, George Claycomb, and Mark McCowan. Talon said she didn't talk too much about it, but that her demeanor was one of concern. He said he interpreted that Susan was upset because she felt Little didn't deserve to die. He said over the years that he heard rumors that Little was shot because he didn't have enough money to give Jamie Snow. Shane Talon, Julie Knight, and Paula Wingett testified at the grand jury. Knight told a similar story to the interview, but there were notable differences. She omitted a time frame of 1992 for the conversations and the cold stare from Jamie in the bait shop. She said Susan first told her about the crime two months after it happened, which would be in May or June of 1991. However, Susan and Talon were not dating until August of 1991. Knight also stated Susan laughed about it in front of her husband and kids. Unlike the tone of concern, Talon stated Susan had. She reiterated that Susan spoke about it often and added new information that Susan had also mentioned that Jamie had murdered someone in Florida. And also that Susan said she wished Jamie was around when she was having problems with someone because he is very intimidating and could do anything to get away with it. Talon and Wingett pretty much stuck to their original interview story. Paul Howard did not testify. Nearly a year later, before trial, police interviewed Todd Fox, who was on the defense witness list. Fox had run into Susan in the county jail when he was there on a parole violation, and they had a brief conversation. Susan told Fox about Talon and Knight's statements against her, and that's when Skelton reached out to Fox. Fox stated he dated Julie Knight for about three years, starting in 1997 and that he had mentioned one conversation that he had with Susan. Um, so you, you knew Julie for about, uh, dated her for about three years, and during that time, did you and Julie have any discussions about this case? Yeah, no. We, we would talk, we, I would start to talk about it with her because she'd start getting riled up about it. She, like, she'd be talking to her dad about it, then she'd get upset about it because she thought she was going to get caught up in it, and 
and all this other stuff and she really didn't want to do this and really didn't want to do that so me and her would start talking I'd ask her then why are you doing this you know if you don't want to get involved in it why are you doing it and I really would never get an answer out of her she would never really answer say anything to me to me personally about it so Julie never told you directly what she knew about this case if anything well, at one, at one time she did, she told me that she knew that she, she told me that at one time her and, her and Susan Powell, I don't know if they had the conversation about it or if it just came up or whatever, but Susan, she said that Susan had told her that she knew where the gun and where the car was. Did Julie Knight want to be part of this case and testify in this case? No. 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 Not at all. Because, and, and the reason I say that is because I can go on her dodging the subpoenas, wanting to dodge the subpoenas, her saying that she's going to get caught up in lies, that, 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 that she didn't want to get caught up. And even at one time, even at one time, there was a conversation between Shane and her. Shane told her, he said, the only thing you'll be caught, caught in, if anything, is perjury. And that, that was it. And then she made she had made she had made the comment that she just didn't she didn't want to get involved in it. And then and then about the gun and the car thing, then she turned around in in a conversation between her and Shane and retracted it and said she she actually she didn't know where the gun and where the car was. That's what she had said. So Julie was was saying at times that she had information from Susan. And she said she didn't want to be involved in, involved in this case. Mm -hmm. She didn't. She didn't want to lie. Uh, then she thought maybe she ducked the subpoenas. It was just you could tell that she did not want to be part of the uh, of the case. Right. And 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 I can't. I can't honestly sit here and tell you guys that she said said well, you know, Todd, I'm lying. It wasn't that. It's just that by her saying, well, I knew where the gun in the car was, and telling Shane, well, I I don't know, and all this other stuff. I, that's where I got that she was lying. Okay. And plus her wanting to dodge the subpoenas and, and Shane dodging the subpoenas and you know and all this other stuff. It was just and, and me knowing Julie, she was lying. She she's lying. That's your opinion. That's my opinion. Fox told police that Julie Knight had been talking to police about other cases as well and talks a little bit about the pressure Paul Howard was putting on her to save her kids from being taken by CPS. Did you ever hear Julie's dad tell her that she needed to tell the truth and she needed to tell um, the investigators or she needed to tell what she knew about this case? I heard Julie's dad tell her that uh, she needed she needed to do along the lines of you need to do something in order to save these kids because her kids were in DCFS custody and she was losing them because she was screwing up. And I don't know if he meant it, you need to say something about this, this murder case or you need to say something about something else. But I know that it was, that Julie was, um, by her dad, was being coached into telling on people for drugs. I do know that for a fact. Because I was there when Steve Evans was calling the house and plus Julie was running wild at the time. So when Julie first started talking to us, you were kind of correct. You were in the that middle was in of 2000, 19, 
the middle of 1999, uh, when we start talking to you, Danny and I start to put this case together. Okay, that's mm -hmm. correct. Uh, so from that point, when you first heard Danny talking to the police about this case, mm -hmm. and all the subsequent things you heard in between, all the way to the time I was at that trailer serving that continuous call. She never told you that she was upset with Danny because he lied to her, but he didn't get help her get her No, she, she didn't say anything like that. She, and you're an intelligent person, right? So that would leave you to think that really wasn't an option, correct? Well, to be quite frank with you, I... You've seen us work before. We can't make those kind of promises. You want to know something? Honestly, you guys can do what the hell you want to do. You're in the law. You're the law, okay? Um, I, know, I know the only thing above you is statutes and, and, and written laws, but if you want to do something, you're going to do it, okay? And, and, and I'm not goofy, I'm not stupid. Fox also shed some light on talent. Did Shane ever tell you what he knew about this case? Shane said he didn't know a goddamn thing, didn't want involved. That, was, that, that is what Shane said. Shane said he didn't know nothing and didn't want to get involved. Did you ever hear any conversations between Julie and Shane about this case? Yes, I did. They were talking, um, Shane, Shane, the way it come up was Shane asked Julie why in the hell she was running her mouth about this. And at the time, Julie didn't reply to it. Because I, what had happened was, was that it had pulled Shane in the middle of it. By Julie running her mouth, it had pulled Shane in the middle of it. and. That's why Shane questioned her and asked her, why, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you getting involved in it? Katz tries to change Fox's mind about Knight and starts to pepper him with questions about why she may not want to be involved. Let me ask you a question. Let's say, for example, you had some information about this case. Mm -hmm. On Jamie and Susan? On Jamie and Susan or, 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 or something like that. Mm -hmm. on, a, on a homicide case. Right. Would you go around telling people, I know this, I said this to the police? I sure wouldn't. Would you want to be involved? No. Would you want a subpoena? No. How about testifying in court? No. How about telling friends, I know all about this? No. Would you I keep wouldn't. your mouth shut and say, I don't know nothing? I'd take it to my grave. I wouldn't open my mouth. But that's not Julie. That's not Julie. See, Ju Julie, in, in my opinion, Ju and I, I've, seen Ju I've seen Julie operate. I don't know how many times in her little schemes and scams. Julie is an attention getter. She wants she wants attention, and she'll get it in any way that she can. In any way she can get it. Now, if she did this for attention, I can't sit here and tell you she told me she wanted she did it for attention. I can't tell you that. But all I can do is I can tell you I know Julie. I've seen Julie operate. I was there looking in Julie's face when this stuff was going on, and everything else, and. In my own personal opinion, I, th I think she's lying. I think she's lying. Regardless of the exact time you start having a relationship with Julie Knight, mm -hmm. and probably sometime in 97, it could be the latter part of 96, it could be the latter part of but somewhere that time. Mm -hmm. Really, none of this conversation ever surfaced until 1999, is that correct? Right, later. It was, it, yeah, it was later on. She never, she never came to me that I know this information. She didn't come to me and say, I know this information or anything like that. It, it was just... Prior to... Prior to I didn't mean to cut you off. Mm -hmm. She never came to you prior to 
sent the cat to myself, talking to her, and said, I know this information. All the information you heard after this was after Danny and I talked to that correct? The crux of it, yes, but before that, there was little, that was like when the, I think there was a picture that came out in the paper about uh, Jamie, that they had got him, or they were they were close to getting somebody or something like that. It was something that had to do with the paper, and that's when she went and shot her mouth off to Shane. That, that's, that's mainly when it all started coming about. So the latter part last year. Right. Well, I can't say right, but I would, I would suspect so. Julie Knight was the first to testify in Susan's trial. She recounted her story that Susan told her in the 30 to 60 conversations while partying and drinking and drugging, that Jamie shot Little, and that Susan drove the getaway car. This time Knight stated she had stayed silent because she was afraid of Jamie. Jamie Snow was very intimidating, she said. I was scared and frightened. I still am. Julie Knight denied ever telling Fox that she was in the car with Susan during the shooting, that they dropped her off somewhere, or that Susan had knowledge of where the gun or the car was. Knight said Fox told her she had to testify whether or not she was scared because she had to do the right thing. Knight's husband, Tony Knight, also testified, but it doesn't seem he added much to the state's case. He just confirmed that they were dating in 1991, and that one time he and Julie Knight were at Susan's apartment visiting, and Julie and Susan were at the kitchen table, and he heard someone say the word Clark, and then came to know years later they were talking about the Clark gas station. He stated he didn't know anything specific. Shane Talon, Julie Knight's brother, retold the story he told the grand jury. Under cross-examination, Talon denied telling Knight's boyfriend, Fox, that he didn't want to testify, but he admitted that he told Fox that he didn't have any information about the Clark murder in 1999 because he didn't trust him and it suited his purposes. Aaron Fox was called as a defense witness. Fox confirmed that he learned Julie Knight had knowledge of what happened to the vehicle after the night of the crime on two separate occasions. He testified that he'd heard Knight and her father talking about her concerns, getting caught up in the case, and her father told her that it could help her get her kids back. Fox also stated that Knight had told him that she knew where the gun and car were based off what someone told her, and that she said she was in the car with Jamie and Susan that night, and they dropped her off somewhere. Fox's testimony was consistent with his interview with police. So why all the family drama? A newspaper article written after Julie Knight's testimony reveals a possible motive. Claycon's attorney, Steve Skelton, suggested Knight fabricated the statements in order to obtain favorable treatment from authorities. Skelton noted Knight first told police about Claycon's alleged confessions in 1997 after Knight had been taken into the Bloomington police station because of unspecified legal trouble. She made another statement in April 1999, a few days after losing custody of her children. We don't have any of the transcripts from Susan's trial. However, according to the Panagraph newspaper, Julie Knight's ex-BFF testified for the defense in Susan's trial as well. The defense also challenged the credibility of witnesses who previously testified Jamie Snow and Claycomb admitted during conversations years ago that they were involved in Little's death. For example, Bridget Logston testified that Julie Knight told her Bloomington Police Detective Dan Katz offered to help Knight regain custody of her children if she would make statements implicating Claycomb and Jamie Snow. 
Knight told jurors last week that Claycomb admitted on several occasions to driving the getaway car for Jamie Snow. Katz declined to comment on Loxton's testimony. Loxton also testified Knight is known to be a liar. Eddie Hammond, who is in prison for bank robbery, testified Knight has a reputation for dishonesty. But under cross-examination from state's attorney Charles Renard, Hammond said he's been locked up for so long that he couldn't be certain that he was thinking of the same Julie Knight who testified against Clay Combs. Circuit Judge Donald Bernardi ordered jurors not to consider Hammond's testimony. The judge also barred testimony from Daryl Gaddis, who said two prosecution witnesses, including Shane Talon, are known liars. Talon testified earlier this week that Claycomb admitted being in the getaway car. The bottom line is, according to their interviews and police reports, the entire family had been told in 1992 that Susan was the driver and Jamie was the shooter in the Clark murder. But no one came forward or reported this information until Julie was in trouble in 1997, and again when she lost custody of her children in 1999. This is a recurring theme with Katz. Recall, his wife worked for CPS, and he pulled that card with Danielle Rowland as well. Shane Talon spoke with us for the podcast and revealed new information about why he testified. So you testified in the grand jury for Susan and Jamie's indictment. Okay, okay. Do you remember what you testified to? No, I do not. I really don't. It was something that she had told me. I remember that, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Is Paula your mother? Yes. And and Julie Knight is your sister? Yes. And did y'all talk about the testimony before? No. Okay. So you know they testified as well? Yes. Okay, but y'all didn't discuss it before? No. No, I'm not close with Julie. Okay. I, I don't like her. Okay. And do you know Todd Fox? Yes. Okay, did you talk about it with him? No. Okay. Is is Paul your Paul Howard? Was that your father or no? Yeah, he was my stepfather. He was your stepfather. So did you? So you didn't talk about the testimony with anybody else? No. Okay. And you weren't even close with Julie and Paul at that time. No. And Julie never told you anything about a gun and a car and all that no. stuff. No, she did not. No. And you lived with Susan. Yes. Okay, and and you remember her telling you something about this case, but you don't remember yeah. what? Yeah, I don't remember what it was, though. You don't remember at all what it was? No, no, I actually don't. How did, did you know Jamie? Yes. How did you know Jamie? I grew up next to her Okay. Did you think that he committed this crime? No. At that time? You didn't? No. Okay. No. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to, to tell me? No, I mean, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's all foggy and just like, I don't know, like, you know, Susan's passed out, and I, I just remember the police coming to me and they said, they charged me and said, I for what Susan had told them or something. And I was like, I didn't think my testimony would even matter. Again, it's a lot of years ago. I didn't pay attention to what she was telling me. And I, I remember saying that in court. So you don't remember testifying that Susan told you that she was in the car when Jamie went in and shot? I remember her saying she was in the car, but I don't remember her saying 
Listen, I don't remember that. I remember saying she was in a car when something bad had happened or something like that. Um, but I don't understand that. I don't understand that she was Jamie or anything like that. You don't remember her saying anything about Jamie? No. Let me ask you this. So the the police, who who were the police officers that talked to you? Cats and somebody else. Was it Barkas? Yes, it was. Okay. And they told you that if you didn't tell them or testify or testify or tell them that you were going to be charged with an accessory? Yes, with all evidence or whatever to a murder. Because your testimony doesn't match what you're telling me now. Right. Was there any information that you felt like they gave you? Or did you feel threatened? Or did you get anything about... Well, yeah, no, but I mean, they told me about it. They, they, they played a tape for me that Susan was on. And they kind of waited and stopped it. They told me that they, she had already told them what she had told me. And I said, well, this is here. I said, I don't remember none of this shit. And... I mean, it was, yeah, of course, they're elite, they're all police officers are. Like, what she's like, um, I wish I was never even alone in this fucking bullshit. I think everybody knows who actually did be fucking around. I don't understand why my mother's talking like, I'm so understanding it, but, I don't know. So you didn't get out, they didn't offer you a deal, or you didn't get any charges, or you didn't get any reward money, it was a threat. No, no, yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of, it was, if I didn't tell me what Susan told me, I never understand any charges of accessory to murder. I don't remember really what she said. I remember saying something about a car, and she was driving or something. That's all I remember. I don't remember she was saying anything about Jamie or anything like that. Do you remember when the grand jury question, they asked if you thought Jamie did it, and you said yes? No. I don't remember that at all. Do you feel like they told you in any way what to say besides making the tape for Susan? Yeah, of course. Okay. But Julie, uh, now, you know Julie testified, too. She never talked to you about her testimony or your mom? No, 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 no. Julie is a habitual liar. I mean, that girl, I'll tell you that, I'll pick you over blind, and she will lie to you die. That's what I'm going that she saw one, and ain't nobody else going to tell her anything different. And uh, I don't know, maybe if dad talked around her or something, and Then you didn't then? No. No. This is astounding information, and we appreciate Talon coming forward. We hope that others will as well. We also reached out to Julie Knight, but she has so far ignored our request to speak to her. Tammy Snow and Kim are adamant that the conversation never occurred. In a strange twist, Bridget Logsdon testified in Jamie's trial about an entirely different incident. Bridget claimed that she was with Jamie's wife, Tammy Snow, her ex-friend, Julie Knight, and a woman named Kim at a bar called Jesse's Place on Front Street during the summer of 1999. Logsdon claimed that Tammy said she knew Jamie did it. Bridget says she did not report the conversation to authorities because it was none of her business, and she did not know there was a murder investigation going on. She didn't think it was important, but she knew Julie was being questioned about it for the past five years. 
so she didn't know there was a murder investigation going on. But she knew Julie Knight had been questioned about it for the last five years. Bridget confirms that all she heard was Tammy say she knew Jamie did it. She said she knew the context because Julie said she was asking her about it earlier on in the night. She said she did not hear the word murder or robbery mentioned or hear her say words that her husband shot and killed Bill Little on Easter 1991. Bridget also confirmed that she never went to the police on her own and first spoke about it to private investigator Mark Foster for Susan Claycomb's trial. So why did she testify? We know she has quite the record. And as late as 2015, she testified against someone else upon getting arrested for theft and robbery. She suddenly had information three months after the crime occurred. Thankfully, Macy O'Mans was acquitted. Man acquitted of firing a handgun. A Bloomington man has been acquitted on charges he fired a handgun at the occupants of a car last year during a dispute outside a local business. And McLean County jury spent less than 30 minutes in deliberations before finding Maceo Manns innocent of aggravated discharge of a firearm, Assistant State's Attorney Brian McAdowney said. Prosecutors say Manns, 34, fired the weapon during an argument with Bridget Logston, November 18th, in the parking lot of a business in the 800 block of West Front Street. McEldowney said the state's case was skinny. Logston, the main prosecution witness, testified Manns shot at the car that night, according to testimony during the trial. But the woman waited three months to report the incident to police and did so only after she had been arrested on charges of theft and robbery, McEldowney said. Moreover, Jesse Manns, the defendant's uncle, testified he was at the business on the night in question and his nephew didn't shoot at anyone, McEldowney said. Manns has previously been convicted of selling crack cocaine in 1999 and armed violence in the 1989 stabbing death of a Leroy man. McEldowney said Manns may have been eligible for between 4 and 30 years in prison had he been convicted of firing the handgun at the occupant. We reached out to Bridget for comment, and she wasn't interested in making any statements for the podcast. She did state that she doesn't remember what she testified to, and it was all hearsay anyway. Sam, how well did Jamie know Julie's parents? Paula said she used to babysit him. Is any of that true? It is true. Um, Jamie's father, Junior Snow, was um, was a neighbor of uh, the Wingetts, and he knew Julie. Julie was younger, and uh, Shane was also a little bit younger than him. Um, I think Paula. I think Jamie did mention that Paula used to babysit him sometimes, and that. Uh, and Shane told me that him and his father actually found Jamie's father when he passed away, that he was in a, in a chair, and they were the ones that called the police. Why hasn't Julie slept in five days when she's brought in by the Bloomington Police Department to talk about Susan and Jamie? What was she so stressed out about at that time? Was she in trouble with the law? Well, I don't really know, you know, know why she said that, but according to the people closest to her, she was about to get her children taken away from her. And that comes up over and over, you know, with different people in the case. Uh, 
Um, Shane had also mentioned that she was an informant, that she had dealt drugs. So, you know, I think I think she had a lot going on at that time. But I doubt that she had been up for five days. But you know what? It could have possibly been that she was stressed out about the lie that she was going to have to tell on the stand. Recall that, you know, uh, was it Aaron Leslie that was saying that she was really stressed out during that time? Yeah, he used the term that she would get really riled up about it. And that her brother would just keep asking her, well, then why are you doing this? And that she wouldn't have an answer. Exactly. Mark Foster indicated on the stand at Susan Claycomb's trial to defense attorney Steve Skelton that he took notes on his interviews with Julie Knight and Bridget Logsdon. Aaron Fox and Bridget Logsdon also indicated they spoke with him. Do we have any idea what he found? We don't know what they found out. We don't have those those notes, so... We don't know anything beyond what Foster testified to. So those transcripts were never made available then? They're talking about his investigator notes. Oh, his notes have never been made available. Right. That'd be interesting to read those. It was in regards to Danny Martinez's testimony because they were arguing over why he didn't take notes every single time he talked to Danny Martinez. Um, whereas if he would talk to somebody like Julie Knight, all of a sudden he would take notes. But with Danny, he kept a lot of things off the record. And then you know how that really, you know, screwed up the case was Danny Martinez. So um, I think he was just trying to discredit him altogether with his note taking. The state was hammering on him about not taking notes. Uh, what would have been helpful to be brought out was that they didn't take any notes when Martinez made the ID. Do you see what I mean? Exactly. So if, they, if they would have countered with that saying, okay, well, wait a minute, you're saying Foster didn't do that. You know, you did not memorialize this ID, you know, that they made of Jamie in a, you know, in a private meeting. So you're going to tell me, you know, you're going to talk to me about notes. Yeah. And I, I just find it hard to believe that a third of a page is enough for Julie Knight. I don't think she would ever say things that could fit on a third of a page and Bridget too, um, her rap sheet can't even fit on one page. So, you know, it does seem like it was very insufficient to me. Tam, you recently spoke with Julie Knight and Bridget Logsdon. What did those two have to say? Well, I had reached out to Julie a few years ago and she told me she did not want to talk to me. When I asked her another question, she threatened to call the police and said, accused me of harassing her which I did. And I asked her a question, you know, but she gave me the old, if you contact me one more time, (laughs) or if you respond to this at all, I'm going to call the police. And I'm thinking, wow, uh, you know, I don't know what the Bloomington police are going to do about this. (laughs) And I'm sitting here in Tennessee. Right. So I, of course I didn't contact her again. Um, I did contact her recently and she did not respond and uh, I did the same with Bridget a few years ago and she wouldn't speak with me either but recently she was more communicative and and she did speak with Jamie's attorney and as I understand she didn't really remember much about anything she said it was hearsay we hear this a lot in the case you know I didn't say anything it was just hearsay 
I just said what, you know, somebody told me, or it was just rumors. I don't know why they put me on the stand. You know, nobody wants to have take any responsibility. Well, you know, people have taken responsibility for their for their testimony. I can't say that. But many people do not want to take responsibility for putting Jamie away for life based on what they said. Of course, they don't want to be involved. But boy, they sure did then, didn't they? Right. That's the problem. Do you know why Bridget referred to Julie as her ex-friend during Jamie's trial? I don't. Apparently, they had a spat. And I'm not sure that they ever even made up. But Shane did mention in our recent conversation that Julie testified against several people in other cases. And he he mentioned Bridget. And I think he may, may have even said that she testified against her twice. So that could be it. But then, you know, Bridget testified against people too, other people too. So who who knows? It it sounded kind of petty. Uh, Bridget was also making comments during Susan's trial. So it was just a spatty, petty. That's how it came across to me. Just kind of a petty thing. It's a petty argument. Yeah. Well, I mean, who says that's my ex friend? Right. Like you're 14. You're saying years that, old. right? It's a school <laughs> hog, you know, adolescent thing to say. My ex friend. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, I don't know if people realize this, but Bridget was only 24 when she took the stand. She was 10 years younger than Jamie. And uh, I don't even. I, I guess that means she was a lot younger than Julie, too. So that does account for a lot of her immaturity. Because, I, I mean, then what was she only 20 or 21 when she supposedly heard the statement from Jamie's wife at the bar? So she, she, she was a kid. Yeah. What was Shane talking about a tape of Susan that he saw? Was Susan tape saying incriminating things? It isn't clear to me what tape he's talking about. It seems like. Maybe it was the one when she was first arrested in Tennessee. She was terrified. She was very confused and she really didn't know what was going on. I think they were telling her that Jamie said she was the driver, but I can't be a hundred percent on that. Recall Mary Burns testified that Susan mentioned something like she didn't understand why Jamie said she was driving the car. She said that, what, six or, you know, 10 times. Why did Jamie say that? So there had to be a statement somewhere. Someone was telling her that Jamie said that she was driving the car. That's the only thing I can figure that he's talking about. Has Jamie's lawyer, Tara, spoken to Shane since this recording? Has there been any luck getting an affidavit? Not to my knowledge. I I do not believe that Tara has spoken to him yet. Leslie, Julie and her brother, Shane, first testified at the grand jury. Can you tell us what that was like? Julie told the grand jury the exact same story as in her interview, except for this was the first time she mentioned she heard Jamie also murdered someone in Florida. She also said that police talked to her about it five years ago, but we don't have any record of that. During her BPD interview... She had mentioned that her and Susan stopped being friends because there were rumors going around that she talked to the cops. So was that the incident? Was that the time that police spoke to her five years ago? So I don't think it was a rumor. I think she outed herself as an informant here. She would have talked to Crow at this time, and I wonder if he ditched the lead because it wasn't substantial. All her brother Shane said at this time was that Susan told him one time in their kitchen that she was in the car when Jamie shot the kid and she was sorry about the way he died. 
He consistently said he had no further information when pressed by Charles Renard and the grand jury members. He said he had no other details at all. He seemed reluctant to cooperate past this one thing he was willing to say, and that's interesting because later at trial, he seems more willing. Their mother, Paula, took the stand too, but she contributed nothing really except to say that Susan told her she knew about the murder but didn't want to go there and wouldn't testify. She said that both her kids and her ex-husband were saying Susan told them similar things. Her ex-husband did not testify at all, and I don't know why. It seems odd to me that a mother and a brother and a sister all, all testifying at the grand jury. And and you said you don't know why. It's, it, it's also strange when you read the grand jury transcripts, they had so many people that that didn't end up testifying. You know, it's just kind of like a few of them came over and then you had a whole new set of people that testified in the trial. You know, they, they didn't even use a lot of the people that testified in the grand jury. So that that's always seemed strange to me. And another thing about the grand jury testimony is Tara had mentioned to me that it was very unusual to have that many people testify at a grand jury. Well, aren't they allowed to say hearsay at the grand jury? And it's a lot looser. So a lot of the stuff they were saying at the grand jury, they couldn't even get into trial. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense too. So they just got other people to say it. That's why they had to have their their corroborative witnesses. I know we got off. I mean, the other thing is, I don't know. Are you going to address? Do you even want to? About it seems like Susan may have just been susceptible to crying about it while she was high and saying rumors or saying garbage or something like that. I I don't believe that she did that. So I don't believe that she did that. I don't you, believe you think that he made that up, Shane, when he was saying she was saying she was in the car with, with Jamie. That's all she said was she was in the car with Jamie. That's all. I don't know if she said that or not. I know they weren't ever alone in a car together, but recall that it was Jamie, Susan and Tammy, you know, when they passed at Palumbo. So they had been in the car together at some point. But that was so much later. I don't even think, because I was trying to needle him a little bit, you know? I was like, well, Shane, you said this. Do you remember saying this? But also yeah. recall also recall what he said was that they said they were going to make him an accessory. And I don't think they could have, but maybe they could have. But, you know, they were, he, he, his fear was they were trying to drag him into it. I mean, that's a big part of this interview. That's all I care about. When he said, yes, they told me that they were going to, impl- that I was implicated in it. Yeah. It and seems that's like- when I told them whatever they wanted to hear. And that's why people don't remember what they testified to because it was a lie and the cops told them what to say. Yeah. It seems like he had had to cut he gave maybe told them all oh, this one time susan was crying and then he had to exaggerate and throw in extra details and stuff like that and it just got blown out of proportion um and you know when he goes on the grand jury and he's a little tight-lipped and he's keeps saying over and over i have no further information i have no further information you can tell that he's uncomfortable with the whole thing and it's not until susan's trial the next year that he 
all of a sudden is almost like a participant. And I wonder if that's because, you know, actually, I have no idea why, you know, why that would be. I don't know. Maybe he was um, getting his drugs from Julie, like he said. Have you ever got to talk to um, Aaron Todd? Because he seems like he hates them and he'd have a lot to say. Yeah, I've talked. I've talked to I've talked to Todd. It's it's Aaron Fox and he calls him. He goes by Todd. He said that Julie told him that she was there and that it was a couple of black guys that she was with that did that crime, which I just don't believe that. No, neither do I, because if she had any information at all, she would have used it. She wouldn't be, you know, she's not a ride or die looking for some poor guy to dump it on. She she would never do that. She would just tell (laughs) But that's where we have to sift through all of these rumors and go through what we hear. I would rather use his tape from then. There's nothing more except embellishments, you know, that he doesn't know. So, yeah, he's I've talked to him. He's he's okay, But he still says that she's a liar. She's a liar. She's a liar. She's a liar. People talk about her like they talk about the reverend. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, if he's, if he told, what did, what did his brother say? If he told me the sky, the sky was uh, blue, I would tell him he was lying. (laughs) Yeah. And that did strike me when, how (laughs) Frank had Bill Gaddis on the stand and his whole family willing to throw him under the bus and then come to find out we have the same thing with Julie Knight. Um, She just didn't make it to trial. So, um, I wonder if she she actually could have done a lot of damage if the state put her on because Frank wasn't going to do anything about it, probably. Leslie, there was a lover's quarrel on the stand again in this case. Julie versus Aaron Fox. Can you tell us how that went down at Susan's trial and what was exposed? When Julie took the stand at Susan's trial, she said that her ex Aaron was lying about everything he claimed she said that they were in an abusive relationship and that she lost custody of her children due to him. Aaron testified that Julie told him she knew where the gun in the car was and that she got a ride from Jamie and Susan that night. He tried to indicate to the prosecutor that he was upset with things Julie did to other people that were not right. He admitted they were in an abusive relationship but insisted he wasn't convicted of abuse towards her and that it was a two-way street. His testimony became significant suddenly because this is the first time he reports on record that Julie said she was in the car with Jamie and Susan the night of the crime. If she really did tell him that, it is indicative of the kind of story she was trying to spin, the attention-seeking stuff he told the cops about, but we don't have the private investigator's notes to prove he told anyone else about this. The prosecution tries to make a big deal out of him not telling the police about this, and reads off a transcript of his interview where they tell him they want to know everything he knows. He agrees that's how it went down in the interview room, but Skelton questions him for a third time to clear this up, and Skelton emphasizes that this was a Q&A-style interview, and Katz even ended it by saying, quote, I have no further questions, we'll stop the tape then. So he does a good job there defending that Aaron may not have been prompted for that detail, so he didn't provide it then. The prosecution also tried to insinuate that since he and Susan spoke in the jail, they hatched a plan together. Skelton diffused that situation again 
and got him to say that they had only spoken for three minutes max, and he already knew all about what Julia was saying about Susan. Shane took the stand, too, and Skelton did a good job pointing out some inconsistencies in his story. This time, he seems to be hyping up the accusation that Susan had a drug problem and was smoking crack that night. When at the grand jury, he seemed more reluctant. He said he wasn't sure about that. Skelton read his grand jury testimony off the paper for the rest of his questioning and got him to confirm that those were the right version of events. However, Skelton did miss something here. Maybe he didn't need it, but he could have asked Shane what his sister's propensity for lying was. If he was too scared to go against the police about Susan, perhaps he would have been more willing to expose Julie, seeing as he dislikes her so much to this day. We know that Susan was found not guilty. So we know Skelton's defense work with these hearsay witnesses was very effective in impeaching their credibility. Jamie was convicted off of people exactly like Julie, who said they heard him say he had knowledge of the crime. But in Susan's case, when someone close to her spins a story, her attorney gets people from their own family to testify against them and null and void the claims. That kind of dynamic is exactly what Jamie needed in his trial. Remember how last episode Pitts let Mary Burns get off easy on the stand, but then Jamie's new team got three affidavits confirming she lied from people who were available to testify at the trial had they been asked. The way Skelton was there for Susan when Julie Knight came for her is the kind of defense that Jamie deserved. None of these people testified at Jamie's trial, but Bridget did instead briefly. What happened? And do you think there was some kind of motive with that? Bridget took the stand and she seemed kind of abrupt and a bit rude. She just said that she knew Tammy and Julie were talking earlier in the night about Bill Little's case, and then later when she was sitting at the table with them and another girl named Kimmy, she heard Tammy say she knew Jamie did it, and that was it. She said she walked away and they left soon after. She said it wasn't her business to go to authorities. Tina Griffin literally only asked her to tell that one version of the conversation briefly. It must have taken two minutes. She literally didn't say any other words Tammy Snow may have said except for, I know Jamie did it. Nothing else at all. On cross, the only thing Frank Pitzel was able to do was get her to admit that she didn't hear anything about a robbery or a murder to demonstrate that she didn't know the context of that statement. He was also very sarcastic, like, so Tammy was there at a bar talking about her husband's guilt, is that right? Did you hear the word murder? Did you hear the word robbery? Did you excuse yourself to call the authorities? And then he let her go. Her testimony was pretty weak. I think the prosecution used her instead of Julie because Julie had so much baggage that included one ex who wouldn't exactly vouch for her and another one that insisted she was a liar and a manipulator. So this way, they still got someone to say they had information that the defendant did it, but they didn't have to call in several others to corroborate it. It was cut and dry. Julie could have showed up and talked about how Jamie supposedly intimidated her at her dad's shop one day and how scared of him she was, but I think they scratched her off the list because of her history. What's interesting, though, is Bridget also has a really bad criminal history dating back to when she was just 17, including aggravated battery of a police officer, criminal property damages, alcohol offenses, domestic battery, and resisting arrest all before she testified against Jamie in 2001. Frank never asked her about her reputation for truth or honesty or any of these prior violent convictions. Since then, Bridget has been convicted of other violent crimes and even served time in prison for reporting a false offense in 2012. 
so Frank really missed an opportunity to bring these problems up at Jamie's trial. He failed where Steve Skelton succeeded in shining a light onto Julie Knight's history of behavioral issues and possible motivations to be deceptive. So it seems to me Julie's stories, you know, she just kept coming up with different scenarios, you know, saying that Jamie intimidated her, you know, none, none of this, her, her story just continued to change, it seems to me. Yeah, it seems like she had to come up with a reason why she didn't report this. Uh, maybe they were pressuring her and saying, oh, well, if you had this information, you're an accomplice. Were you in the car with Susan? Were you there? And, you know, maybe she just had to be like, oh, no, I was afraid of Jamie. That's why I never said anything this whole time. And she was, you know, it's easy. We see this time and time again in the case. It's easy to say Jamie did X, Y, Z, but he didn't even open his mouth. He didn't respond at all. We saw that with uh, Bill Gaddis saying that Jamie confessed to the murder by not saying a word. So that's basically what she's doing, too. She's able to make up a story and put Jamie there. And because she doesn't have to say he even said one word, he can't really combat it. I mean, she's just saying dude was in the same room as her. And the same thing Bill Gaddis said. So, um to me, that's very telling of, you know, how an informant will try to get away with that. It would be interesting to track down those dates because as we found a lot of times people say something and Jamie was either, you know, in St. Louis, Florida, or, you know, in jail. Yeah, exactly. Um, And also it doesn't seem like her father had that bait shop for all of the 90s, so that would be another way to narrow it down, too. Mm-hmm. Or she could just do what they did with um, Martinez and, you know, Randy Howard and be like, so which of these pictures did Jamie look like that day he came in there? And if she picks the the heavier one, then, you know, she's lying because he wasn't there when he was that weight. Right, right. The one really consistent thing we see every episode when we're looking at these people testifying is the total failure of Jamie's attorney. And I always compare it to Susan's attorney. I mean, that's the easy thing to do, but it's each one. I mean, he never does anything correctly. I mean, we've pointed out maybe one or two things he did sort of right during the entire trial. And this is just another case with Bridget on the stand. It is, you know, I listened to this podcast called Another Not Guilty, and it's it's really good. It's it's public defenders, and when they get a not guilty, they come on and they tell their, the story of their, you know, the story of the case. And these are, you know, it could be a shoplifting charge, it could be murder, it could be, you know, uh, drive by or beating somebody up or you know in, anything, you know, because everything's thrown at you in the in the public defender's office. And you just wouldn't believe the stories about how hard these people fight for their clients with little resources. They had, they had a lot of resources, you know, I mean, they got paid. I think the final bill just payment was $75,000 for them. And, you know, they just, they just did so little. And then you hear these people, 
interviewing everybody they can and finding somebody who, you know, somebody said somebody rode by, rode by on a bike. So they're going to track that person down and they're going to interview them for a shoplifting charge. And you look you up know? what these, look up what, what these public defenders are making in some areas too. And it's even more amazing how hard they work. It is, but what's just makes me furious is that they didn't fight for Jamie. Right. In this case, it's a total failure. And Leslie brings it up all the time. And I'm wondering, as I'm reading it again, that he asked the same questions over and over and over to each witness. I wonder if after hearing those questions so many times, the jury just tuned that whole part out because he's just like a broken record. Well, he didn't ask them to bridge it. I mean, what is your propensity for truth and honesty? Do you consider yourself an honest person? There was so much he could have said about her. I mean, the charges that he she asked had. all the basic questions. Did Did you hear anything about a murder? Did he say he killed someone? Did you know all the basic useless questions? Really, when you put it all together, did you see? Did you see Jamie shoot? Bill right. Little? <laughs> yeah, That's how about, a big question. <laughs> how about, is, do you know anybody else named Jamie? Is your brother named Jamie? <laughs> you know, what the hell? Why didn't he say that? Why? I don't understand. Have you ever, how, how many times have you been convicted of a felony? Are you, you know, he didn't say anything. I, I just had this vision of, you know, somebody with cake all over their face, you know, and, and the, you know, the kid with the chocolate all over their face. And they're just like, I didn't, you know, I didn't eat the cake. You know, okay. that, that would be him. You didn't. That would be him as a kid. That would be Pitzel as a kid. You didn't see me eat the cake, did you? <laughs> That's exactly it. You didn't know if it was cake, did you? <laughs> Nobody the saw the crime happen. As far as we know, <laughs> nobody saw seem, the crime happen. That's right. <laughs> it doesn't seem all that compelling to me if I'm a, sitting on a jury and I, I hear this line of questioning to each witness. I think after two or three, I'm just bored. But all of these witnesses, literally nobody saw the crime occur. Nobody saw the shooting. Nobody saw the shooting. There were two people there around you know around this around the time and they have two different descriptions of the suspect that's all the state had all of this other stuff is bullshit they just pulled all of these people out of their hat told them what to say and put them on the stand stacked up a whole bunch of people the thing that this episode made me realize though is they couldn't have got Jamie convicted without doing all this to Susan first because she's the one who had all these connections to a bunch of different people. So it doesn't work if Jamie doesn't have somebody like that with all these other people that, you know, can be connected to him through that web. Without her, a bunch of the witnesses go away. You could never say that he did it. So they used her. They ruined her life. She got off, thankfully, but they still brought all that into his trial still. It's like that stuff didn't get deleted and go away. It, you know, it followed him. Whereas if she was never involved in the first place, it, you know, it couldn't have gotten that far. And they just kept the stuff that worked, right? Well, now Danny Martinez is going to say it's 100% sure because it sure didn't work when he said he was 85% sure that that was Jamie that he saw in Susan's trial. That didn't work. So we're going to change that and make it 100%. 
can we recap again? Why did they pick Susan? How did she get involved in that in the first place? Because obviously we see here how significant she was to this. So how did they, If can we go back and can you remind everybody, how did she even get brought into this in the first place? As far as we can guess, they had to have somebody that would be a witness to the crime. It, it's what you just talked about, that, that circle of people, you know, somebody that they thought was close to Jamie's circle. They had to have somebody that would to be a witness to the crime. Remember, Danny Martinez was was not was not identifying anybody. He was not. And he only identified Jamie short, shortly before, within weeks of Susan's trial starting, because they thought she would cave. They thought she was weak, and they thought that she would testify. Just say you're driving the car, Susan, and you can walk. Now, is that because she had a lot of problems of her own, so they just sniffed her out, like they snuffed out all these other informants? I don't think that they could put anybody else in his circle at the time. Why wouldn't they just pick his wife? I don't know. How old were the kids at the time? Like one, like infant all the way to what, like six? And I'm not not saying they even thought it out, but if Jamie and his wife were both out robbing a gas station, they would have left a one-year-old at home. You know what? What I think it is, is that I don't think so. I think that they knew that Tammy wouldn't do it. Oh, okay. I don't, I, I think they, they knew that she wouldn't, she wouldn't take a deal that they, you know, that, that, that they wouldn't, they underestimated Susan. Was Susan this, turned out to be a big surprise because she didn't cave. Was this rumor with Susan, um, being circulated back in 1992 and 94, 95 when Crow was there? Or did she not even get, you know, brought into this until Katz and Barkas were involved? There was some link there with um, Travis Gaddis. She had been dating Travis Gaddis. And uh, I think it was his coat that, that they, that they took. Um, the leather coat <laughs> that, you know, they kept trying to make out to be something that it wasn't. And I think Susan had pawned it, if I'm remembering right. But you can see how it's woven into freedom. There were two girls, there were two girls in the car and two guys, you know, they, they needed a female driver so they could push that narrative and get it all wonky you know, in with the freedom stuff. Of course, that goes out the window when Jamie's trial comes up and, you know, Susan's acquitted. They can't be talking about it. And, you know, a female driver or anybody else, they're changing the whole thing. Well, it was guys or it was one guy, you know, or we're not going to talk about, <laughs> you know, it's just the state does this all the time. They change their narrative to what will best fit around their theory. And after Susan's trial, they had to change their story because she wasn't available anymore. I mean, that whole narrative had to change. Right. So there's they could two, have rethought so the entire thing. They could have rethought their whole case, but they, you know, they don't do that. They just come up with another narrative. Right. 
So there, so there's two critical points here. One is the critical point where Susan was like, I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm going to trial when that decision was made. And it was a heart wrenching decision. You know, there's a letter from, from Steve Skelton to Charles Renard. And he's just, he said, I know she didn't do this. Like, I mean, he's basically saying, why, why are you pursuing this? Because this is crazy. You know, I, I cannot believe that you're going to let somebody go to prison for something they didn't do. I mean, he nailed him, nailed him to the wall. And, you know, Renard and Tina Griffin, they were just not going to relent. And, you know, they had that trial. So that, so the critical one was when she was like, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to go to trial for murder. You know, even though I'd been pregnant the whole time I've been in County and I had my baby and they put me back in jail, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to trial. And, and when that was decided, that was when they had to have Danny Martinez. They had to have, they had to have somebody ID Jamie. You know, that's what they wanted her for. She wasn't going to bend. And that's when they got Danny Martinez, even though now they're saying he's not a critical witness. Oh, he was absolutely during the trial. He was the star witness. They're trying to rewrite history, but uh, now, you know, in the higher courts. But that's not that was not true at the time. He was the most credible witness that they had. He ID'd him. He didn't have a record. Um, and, you know. Everybody else was an informant that had been in trouble before. That's not unusual either on appeals. All of a sudden, that witness wasn't important. We didn't need him anyway. When, of course, they did. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got all this other stuff. That's why it's important that we knock these, examine the witnesses like we're doing. Right. We you see know, it all the that, time on appeals. They say that, uh, yeah, this might he might not be credible, but it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the trial. How do they know that that wouldn't have changed the outcome of the trial? It's just a blow off line on on these endless appeals that we see from endless cases. Nobody, nobody can tell me that that if if the jury had known how many times they met with Danny Martinez and he didn't ID anybody, right? All right up to the trial, all of that stuff that came out in Skelton's motion to get his ID thrown out. If they had known that. When Jamie took a polygraph on that worksheet that Danny Martinez had said that that was not the person that he saw, that would completely change the trial, completely change the trial. Oh, absolutely. Nobody can tell me that they, you know, that that would not have changed. That one point alone would have most likely changed the verdict. Skelton had him sweating on the stand. He's like, can I have some water? (laughs) You know, 85% sure and now 100% sure. All of that stuff would have absolutely changed everything. And all these people ever recanted and all the people that we knew got deals now and all the people that have said that they just lied, that would have absolutely changed it. Courts are full of shit. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement that Jamie's case would have went completely different if uh, he would have had an attorney like Skelton defending him. You're right. I mean, it's that simple and it's that sad. It is. It's It's a game. Who, who's got the best representation? That's what the battle is. Who's the best lawyer? And it really should never be based on that. I mean, it really shouldn't. It shouldn't be a game. But 
Like, I think that's a good analysis. I think it really is. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In episode 18, we heard an entire family gossip their way into a murder indictment against Jamie and Susan. Darling daughter Julie Knight told her parents and her brother that she knew Susan knew about the crime. So they all gave taped interviews that didn't line up. Julie, mom, and brother would testify at trial. But they were no match for defense attorney Steve Skelton, especially not when he found an ex-lover willing to tell the truth. The state had to dump Julie Knight before Jamie's trial. But she had a gal pal who could sub in for her. Bridget Logston, a violent offender, was brought to the stand to retell a short story she heard at a bar. It worked. Frank Pitzel let her get away with it. But she wouldn't always be so lucky, as years later she actually went to prison for reporting a different crime that never occurred. But we still want to know why the gal pals did it. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a Q&A segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. We've presented a lot of witnesses to you, and each story is outrageous in its own right. Jamie testified in his own defense. Now it's time to examine Jamie Snow's testimony. What did Jamie say in his own defense? How did he counter all the lies? How did he react on the stand? That's next time on Snow Files.